Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm Doug Berkey, Executive Director of Mitchell Institute. Here on Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DoD, industry, and other subject matter experts to explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. If you like learning about aerospace power, you're in the right place. Consider our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thanks so much for joining us. And as a reminder, if you like what you hear, please do us a favor and follow our show and give us a like and leave a comment so we can keep charting the trajectories that matter most to you. Hey friends, this is Shane, producer of the Aerospace Advantage podcast. We recorded this on Monday, 2nd of October, 2023. Please be aware that some events have happened on Capitol Hill since our recording. With that, we hope you enjoy the episode. This week, it's time for The Rendezvous, our monthly installment where the Mitchell team digs into stories you've seen in the headlines. And this time around, we've got General Dave Deptula. Hey, good afternoon, folks. Next, we've got Todd Sledgehammer with us. Great to be here. We've also got Anthony Laser Lazarski. Great to be back with the team. And Sledge and Laser are Washington experts who we have as part of the Rendezvous crew. And we've also got Charles Galbraith from the Mitchell Institute Space Power Center of Excellence. Hey, great to be here. Thanks. Okay, laser and sledge. Last weekend, it was high drama when it came to risking government shutdown, and it's great that the House and Senate passed a 45-day extension, but we could very well find ourselves at the same juncture, you know, at that point. So let's work to better understand what's in play. And for our audience, what are the main points of disagreement between the various sides of this fight over funding? And laser, let's start with you. What's your take on it? Well, first of all, we're going to see this again after this continuing resolution, uh, we have to come up on the 17th of November. So the disagreements on the continuing resolution stem from disagreements overall on the appropriations bills. And it's House and Senate, Republican and Democrat. And broadly, it comes down to how much do we want to spend for FY24 to run the government? You know, how much we want to try to reduce our debt? And then what do we want to spend on defense, non-defense spending? And then as everybody's seen over the weekend, It came down to some border security and support for foreign countries, which specifically is Ukraine. So, you know, in the end, Congress needs to come to an agreement on what they can pass, looking at all those and uh, try to get some sort of bill to the president that he can sign. For the continuing resolution, the House and Senate had to agree on what the funding level was going to be. And they picked FY23, which is what everybody expected, what anomalies to include. And those are exceptions to a continuing resolution, and then basically the border, which you saw in Ukraine. Ultimately, they had to drop Ukraine and the border. They couldn't come to agreements on any of those. But what we did get is a continuing resolution that funded us at FY23 levels, which was great because there was a push to try to get explicitly from the House side to get us a little lower than FY23. And then we had the anomalies in there. So House and Senate passed there. Um, What we did have is obviously there was the drama that we saw over on the House side and specifically from the Freedom Caucus of trying to push for these lower amounts. We were able to, and it was Speaker McCarthy working with the Minority Leader Jeffries, with Senator Schumer and McConnell were ultimately able to get it through. So in the end, while we had to get right to the end on Saturday, Congress, as inefficient as it is, was able to come to an agreement. I appreciate that. Now, Sledge, what are the impacts of a government shutdown? I mean, what what services stop? What bills aren't paid? Are there certain functions that the government continues no matter what, even if employees go without pay? And, you know, specifically to our audience, how are members of the military impacted personally? And what about modernization accounts? 
Yeah, that's a great question, Doug. Well, first, I think the overarching way to think of this is anything or the Anti-Deficiency Act bars any of the federal government agencies from operating or obligating funds without an appropriation. And really what that means is any agency that is subject to discretionary appropriations will not be funded and will have to shut down. Anything that is not subject to an annual appropriation, so mandatory spending like Social Security, is not affected and anything that generates outside revenue on its own like the postal service would not be effective affected as well and even though the government is technically shut down there are certain parts that will stay open that are considered essential services so a lot of the things that health security transportation so there will be tsa agents even though they're not getting paid and financial functions of the federal government uh, but those non-essential personnel you know everyone else are furloughed and agencies are shut down so long as there is a funding gap no, thanks. So we're also hearing a lot about continuing resolution. Obviously, that's how we got through the stopgap here, as, as Laser explained. So guys, you know, where are we on that front? How is that different than a shutdown to what the average citizen would feel on this? And I want to be clear, you know, as I understand it, a CR is bad, but it's less bad in the scheme of things than a shutdown. Laser? You're exactly right. So shutdown, all nonsense, everything that Sledge said, we got to shut everything down. So a continuing resolution, Congress can fund the government for a limited amount of time to prevent a shutdown, which we don't want. And it gives them more time to work on these appropriations bills, which as we've seen since 1997, that we've been on continuing resolutions, they need more time to get these bills done. So what they're doing, the good news is that the House and Senate got together and they have a continuing resolution through the 17th of November. Now, what that does is since, you know, the good news was we're on a CR, the bad news is we're on a CR. So DOD and all the federal agencies were used to this, but money is not always in the right place at the right amounts. You know, we come in, we give a budget, said, here's the budget we want. We move money around, programs have changed. We want new starts. There's going to be no new starts unless there's an anomaly. You know, there's a specific authorization to do so. The money aren't in the right spot. So this, for this limited amount of time that we're on a continuing resolution, we're not moving money around unless Congress says we can move money around. And the last thing is that we don't, typically the federal agencies will not fully fund to the amount of that month or that quarter. So they'll keep it to about 16 to 21%. So we're actually getting less. So even though we say the FY23 levels, we're spending at lower levels because the different federal agencies at least don't wanna run out of money. So again, money in the wrong accounts, no new starts, limited amount of money. All of that impacts when we look at DOD, look at the Air Force, impacts our ability to do operations. So good news, yes, we're on a CR, but bad news, uh, we're on a CR. Unfortunately, we've been used to this because for the last, what, th only three of the last 47 years have Congress have actually been able to pass appropriation bills on time. So Sledge, walk us through the glass that's specifically broken when it comes to national security functions with what Laser just laid out during the CR. You know, as I understand it, challenges compound the longer that this goes into effect. Yeah, I think Laser laid it out pretty well. You know, previous enacted fiscal year funding level, and then they're going to, you know, they're not going to go to that limit month by month just to give themselves a little bit of cushion and only with specific authorities. Again, the the, the term anomaly there. The, the actual program impact, as Laser mentioned, no new starts, no modifications to existing programs or contracts. The one that I think is really important, there are no production rate increases. So whether it be a ship program or an aircraft program or you know, probably more importantly, an ammunition production program, 
you can't increase the rate under a continuing resolution. And then, you know, some of these uh, zombie programs that you wanted to terminate or were scheduled to terminate in a new fiscal year continue to live on under a continuing resolution. I think the financial impact is a little bit harder to capture, and that's really any delay in the ability to pay on contracts requires repetitive administrative tasks are going to drive up the cost. And it's just, it's a bureaucratic pain in the butt for the people that are managing programs and contracts. Sadly, the ability to work around a continued resolution has become a cottage industry in the Department of Defense, and they become very, very adept at, at managing that. And they'll delay new contracts until the second quarter of a fiscal year, or they'll delay training outside of the first quarter. So to your question, the longer it goes, the more impact that it has on, on those programs. And, I, you know, I, I guess probably just a tip of the cap there, they don't often get it, but the KOs and the acquisition professionals do a masterful job keeping the trains running. They may not be on time, but at least they're running. And I think the last thing, we really can't capture the human costs. Having been on the receiving end of this, both as a congressional staffer and in, in uniform, it, it does bother you when there's a continuing resolution and it feels like your board of directors does not care enough to provide you the appropriations. Like Laser said, I think we're going to see this again. I think the intervening drama is going to play out this week, and that will be what happens with the Speaker of the House. It's no mystery to anyone out there that there are, will be a motion to vacate the chair, and the way the, the rules were changed to, to, to win a speakership, McCarthy has allowed a single member to bring that motion to the floor. From the time that that motion is, is brought to the floor, the Speaker has two days and then a vote of 50% of the members present to determine whether or not they will vacate it. If they do, and there's going to be a repeat of the election for a new speaker, then all bets are off as to what happens with the funding under the continuing resolution between now and the 17th of November. I will say one last thing here, and I, I think this quote is attributed to Ralph Waldo Emerson. For those that are going to push the motion to vacate, if you're going to shoot the king, you best not miss. No, I get that one. So General Deptula, you released an op-ed recently trying to kind of break it down for the general public why a CR is negative and, and comes with real costs. And, you know, what's your main message to lawmakers and to the public at large? Well, in addition to what Sledge and uh, Laser has already shared with our audience, let me focus on modernization and readiness. And while all the services are going to be affected, because of the chronic underfunding of both the Air Force and the Space Force, they stand to be the most injured. A continuing resolution simply makes a bad situation worse. Now, the Air Force has been funded less than the Army and the Navy for 31 years in a row, and as a result, it's the oldest, the smallest, and the least ready it's been in its entire history. Let me use the B-21 program as an example of the impact of this gross neglect. The nation took way too much risk shrinking the bomber inventory over the last 30 years while using existing bombers constantly, particularly the B-1 and the B-52. So rapid reset with the B-21 is essential to sustain that mission capability. A new system like the B-21 demands that funding evolves significantly each year as development and production requirements move from one step to the next. A continuing resolution inhibits that progression because you're locked into last year's spending levels, as we've already heard. Now, to, to just make this more understandable, that's sort of like building a house 
but not allowing you to evolve your spending profile as the construction requirements evolve. So once it's framed, you need to move to a plumber and electrician. A CR would prevent that from occurring. A government shutdown just stops everything. So that would be like shutting down the cash to your contractor for the house example. Everything stops and we waste time. Plus, if it extends for a long period of time, contractors will shift talent elsewhere to pay their bills, especially small businesses in the supplier ecosystem who don't have any other way to carry the load while the government doesn't pay them. And we can apply this throughout every mission area of the Department of the Air Force, given the modernization that's required to um, recapitalize this geriatric Air Force we've got. Now, on the readiness front, a CR or a shutdown robbed the service of the resources required to address recruiting, retention, training, and maintenance. And given that we missed recruiting numbers this year, the first time in decades, we've got a severe pilot deficit. Our flying hour accounts were at historic lows. As an aside, back when I was a young captain in the late 70s, we used to joke about the pathetic numbers of flying hours that our adversaries were getting. Guess what? The United States Air Force are flying fewer than our adversaries. And maintenance is severely challenged given the age of the aircraft inventory. The youngest, the youngest FRAP in B-52 is 62 years old. Congress is self-imposing challenges that simply make life harder for airmen and guardians. Plus, they hand the advantage of time and momentum to our adversaries. Now, Bill LaPlante, someone most of you know, the person in charge of defense acquisition, noted recently that China doesn't go through this kind of budget chaos, but if we can teach them how to do that, it would be very beneficial. That's a good line. So, Charles, you also released an op-ed along with Tim Ryan on your team to help explain the unique factors impacting Space Force when it comes down to shutdown or continuing resolution. What were your main points? Yeah, well, first, if General Deptula says the Air Force is geriatric, the Space Force is a toddler, right? And so we're trying to grow this service to, to meet the challenges that are posed by uh, China and Russia and others. Part of why the Space Force exists is to get after the threat. And so there has to be an element of growth associated with where we were to where we need to be year to year. And that growth cannot happen under a CR and certainly not under a shutdown. The Space Force budget was, was set to increase this year by about 13 to 15% over the previous year. Under a CR, that doesn't happen. Uh, Sledge talked about you know, delays and program starts. The Space Force has six new starts planned in FY24. Now, when I was a program manager and a senior material leader, we always were told, don't start a new program in the first or second quarter because you can almost count on a CR. The Space Force has all six of their new starts in the third and fourth quarter of FY24. Now, that doesn't get after the growth that we were supposed to see in the other programs that were started the previous year for things like proliferated uh, low-Earth orbit constellations, the Space Development Agency. Those needed to grow year to year, and those are impacted in the first couple quarters uh, of the fiscal year. So th the, the impacts to all services is bad. The impacts to a service that needs to grow are devastating. Now, and especially when you talk to leadership in the Space Force, I mean, they're moving to a fundamentally new architecture because they have to, the threat demands it, and, and so to, to stop that. And I was just thinking, guys, you know, you think about it, you know, Charles talked about your experience of, of slipping kind of when you do new starts in all a quarter or two, 
you think about adding that up over the number of years of continually had CRs, that's over a decade of collective delay to, to program. It's, it's nuts. Okay, General Deptula, switching gears a little bit. At the AFA conference last month, Secretary Kendall outlined plans for a Department of the Air Force reorganization. And, you know, this required major commands and other organizations within the department to submit an action plan by January 1st. And he wanted them to focus on five lines of effort, overall organization, equipment, personnel, readiness, and, and what they called supporting force. And the bottom line goal here is to move faster in, in recognition that the current challenges demand more decisive modernization and, and mission evolution. And the secretary thinks that the bureaucracy that's evolved over the past 30 years is too slow to handle the China threat and focuses on perceived efficiency over effectiveness. And, you know, look, I got it. Saving a buck, uh, that's great. But if it costs you a war, that's a bad way to go. So thoughts, advice? Well, first, let me compliment the secretary on his intent. It's not lost on anyone that things in the Department of Defense writ large move way too slowly. Now, it's a bit hard to comment on this specifically until concrete findings and a set of vectors are unveiled. But here are a couple of thoughts. The current alignment and organizational construct that exists today in the Department of Defense is, <laughs> and I've called it this for decades now, pre-industrial age. It's a Napoleonic structure of stovepipes. What I'm specifically talking about is the AJ or C staffs or G staff, you know, this whole notion of an A1, an A2, an A3, S3, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. I think at one time we were up to 11. These structures create disintegration in the information age, not integration. Let me give you some examples. Information age imperatives like JADC2 are often lost between the seams of this Napoleonic model because no one with authority or resources is charged with their success. Now, we know who oversees traditional equipment, things like B-21 or F-35 or M-1A-1 upgrade or Columbia-class submarine, but who oversees the information backbone? or command and control? The answer is far more complex. If there's not a single point of authority at the right level of an organization equipped with the proper authorities and resources, progress simply won't happen at the rate and scale necessary. Now that's really complex to capture in an organizational map, given how diffuse and pervasive information age capabilities are. But we need to do better, and we can, by moving to a series of matrixed organizations to deal with cross-cutting issues like C2 and information warfare. I'm, you know, I, I'm, I hearken back to my days when I was the intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance guru. I put together a remotely piloted aircraft task force, or if you don't like the term task force, call it an integrated product team, that had representatives from each one of the stovepipes, but their focus was on accelerating the incorporation of remotely potted aircraft or drones or UAVs or whatever you want to call them into the force. Every one of those organizations is required because of their expertise, but if you're dealing with a program that involves all of them, you have to have a separate organization with someone in charge to see the objectives secured. 
Now, all of that said, at the end of the day, most of the Department of the Air Force's problems tie back to a lack of cash, and a reorganization isn't going to fix that. Funding for the Department of the Air Force is at record low levels. I mentioned that already. We've been at the bottom of the Department of Defense food chain for over three decades, and that's driven a cost. It's already broken our force, and it's just going to get worse unless unless it's corrected. And it's driving airmen and guardians into too many square corners where they simply don't have the means to get the job done at a risk level and a scale that's necessary to combat our adversaries. Now, it's also about culture. And an organization chart is not going to fix that. We need to empower a workforce that's leaning forward, moving fast, taking prudent risk, and rewards risk-taking, not punishing it. It's beyond clear that the Department of Defense leadership's on board with a far more aggressive approach. However, I'd suggest the entrenched bureaucracy simply isn't aligned that way. <clears throat> Nor are there risk-reward metrics set up to reward that attitude. Just ask any business dealing with the Department of Defense today just how painful it is just to get a return phone call some days. This geologic pace is lethal for small businesses, the exact people who are going to provide the innovation that the Department of the Air Force seeks. So key elements of the workforce need a massive reboot, where expectations regarding performance, results, and effectiveness are valued more than process for process's sake. All right, now JSIDS is a whole nother discussion but it is a last century construct that is in dramatic need of revision. Now, I mean, consider how much the Department of Defense workforce never came back to the office after COVID. This isn't effective. Talk to people who are trying to partner with the Department of the Air Force and you'll get an earful. Speak to airmen and guardians trying to work their paperwork, whether it be a travel voucher or the assignments process. They're beyond furious with the system. And that's an attitude issue begging for readjustment. So there are some simple things that can be done. Organization is part of the problem, but the biggest part is a lack of resources for our airmen and guardians to do what's asked them to do. Now, it's a, it's a big list. It's a big problem. And, and folks in charge of this are going to be pretty busy between now and, and the due date. Sludge Laser, Charles, anything to add? I would just add one comment, and I don't, you know, this isn't something that the Air Force or DOD can do on their own. They're going to have to have a partnership with Congress on this. I remember many conversations with my former boss that used to lament the process that DOD went through to acquire things. And I told him, I said, look, boss, the Department of Defense does not do a single thing Congress didn't tell them to do. So they've got to be part of the solution as well. That's a good point. Yeah, so I'll just add a couple points from a, from a space perspective. When we stood up the Space Force staff, we, we didn't have enough people to go around to fill all of those, you know, S1 through 12. And so we had to do some creative organizational changes. So we had the Chief of Human Capital, Chief of Operations, Chief of Strategy and Requirements, and the Chief of Technology and Innovation as opposed to those, those things. But when it came time for those officers and enlisted folks and those civilians and those organizations to talk with their counterparts, we needed to have the decoder ring established. And so... Whatever reorganization the Department of the Air Force comes up with, well, there has to be that decoder ring so they can talk with their Army and Navy counterparts. 
Along the lines of reorganizations, General Saltzman at the, at the conference also talked about there's no such thing as a perfect organization. There's going to be seams no matter how you cut it. And one of the initiatives that, that he rolled out was integrated mission deltas. And so this places in the hands of the operational commanders of those deltas the sustainment funds that, that keep the, the operations uh, continuing, the, the maintenance funds. And this is a, a new approach at, at providing them the authority to do what needs to be done to keep the systems operating throughout the year. This does not align acquisition authority as in starting a new program or, or procuring, but it does align those sustainment activities directly underneath the operational Delta commanders. He's going to try it with a, a couple efforts like GPS to start with, and then if that works out, transition from there. I appreciate that. Let's stick with you some more, Charles. You know, a lot's happened recently in your lane. What should, be tra- what should we be tracking when it comes to space power? Yeah, thanks. So there's been a lot the past 30 or so days. In addition to the integration mission deltas, General Saltzman also unveiled a new mission statement for the Space Force, and it is to secure our nation's interests in, from, and to space. And at the conference, he did an incredible job of laying out each word, I mean, literally word by word, what all that meant and how it fit together and why it was important. Another aspect about this that I think was really cool is they did this with input from guardians across the Space Force. Other activities that, that are worth noting, the DOD responded to Congress's request for a, a strategy on how to protect assets in space. At an unclassified level, they've articulated aspects to, to secure our interest in space through proliferation, disaggregation, distribution, et cetera, as well as the need for counter space capabilities and growth, again, growth uh, in all of the areas that, that we're talking about. There was also a successful mission called Victus Knox. This was a rapid launch of a small satellite and it was within, I think, 26 hours total from call up to launch on orbit. So this took a small satellite from the producer. It was, happened to be in El Segundo. They launched out of Vandenberg. The whole thing from the program office to the launch and then orbit was, was less than 72 hours. So this sets a whole new bar for how quickly we can get capabilities up and it creates a, a complicating factor for potential adversaries. What do we have? Where do we have it? What does it do? That's, that's a huge improvement. We've also had some transitions. You know, some are typically the time when, when folks go. General Shaw, the vice commander at U.S. Space Command, a longtime great space power advocate and, and, and strategist, has retired, as well as Chief Toberman, who was the first, of course, senior enlisted leader for the Space Force. And then while not a U.S. thing, I think it's important to also talk a little bit about Russia and India and their trip to the moon. There was kind of this, I, I like to call it a, a cis-lunar or a lunar tortoise in the hare sort of scenario going on. India took a slow approach to get to the moon. Russia tried to get there in rapid fashion. Russia ended up crashing into the moon. India successfully landed near the South Pole, only the fourth country to ever successfully land on the moon and the first to do it near the South Pole. Why is this important? One, Russia had not done a lunar mission since 1976. They had done several prior and were fully successful. So it's a lesson for us. Just because we've done it in the past doesn't mean it's easy in the future. So we have to pay strict attention to that. Also, India is now one of the partners of of the Artemis Accords. And so it's great to see them succeed and and we can learn from each other in a cooperative environment. So Cislunar is going to become a a, a more important area in in the future. And it's good to see the success from India. there. That's an awesome summary. Boy, that's been a busy couple of weeks or a month there. So... Moving on with the conversation here, Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks made news this past month announcing an initiative termed Replicator. 
and that kind of came out of nowhere from from a lot of people's vantage. And you know, just want to get people's thoughts here. What is it, and and what what are your impressions so far, General Deptula? Start with you. Well, Doug, at a macro level, the Deputy Secretary is talking about how to prioritize various efforts in the Department of Defense, mainly tied to UAVs based on what we're seeing in Ukraine, that can deliver results in a time span of 18 months or so, and to do that at scale. Past that, the details are still unfolding, and there is a lot of general confusion as to the specifics when it comes to how the public is understanding this effort, not just public, but inside the building as well. If there are some programs that can be scaled and turned into operational deliverables that meet uh, sincere requirements, that's wonderful. However, we also need to recognize that we're in a window where delivering capabilities and capacity involves doubling down on what we're building now. Things like the B-21, the F-35, the KC-46, the T-7, MQ-9 improvements, and collaborative combat aircraft efforts. There comes a point where things cost what they cost and they take time given the complexity involved. We need to recognize this versus looking for unicorns that will divert time and money that we simply don't have. You know, the Air Force simply doesn't have the resources required to meet the demands it's already been put under. And we also need to be really careful not to conflate requirements for Ukraine or analogize them to what the United States needs. Because many of those requirements for Ukraine have been driven by the ridiculous limiting factors that we've imposed, like the lack of real air power, like the lack of restrictions on giving the Russians sanctuaries from which to operate from. Did we not learn anything from history? Plus, it's regional scale versus what we'd see in a China situation. Range and payload don't come from a quadcopter. So we need to dial in the intent because there's still too much confusion surrounding what I'm sure is a meaningful effort. But that's going to cost time and it's going to hinder the credibility of efforts that are already in place to correct our deficiencies. Guys, any other thoughts to add on? Yeah, I just like to, I understand that the DOD has not necessarily been called on the carpet, but now has to go to the Hill and kind of explain what they're doing there. So that goes back to my previous point about our force organization. If you're going to do something like this, great, but make sure you have your board of directors on board when you do it so you can get the resources you need. Yeah, the level of confusion at the highest levels in uh, DOD was a little shocking on that one. So well, I'll add in, yeah. Doug, I mean, it comes with no funding, which had really baffled everybody up here on the Hill, because how do you execute a program? And General Deptula just mentioned it. We're resource constrained. You threw another program on here. And by the way, I'm all for this program if it's going to get the results that, you know, of trying to get mass, trying to get additional assets out there in a shorter amount of time, not focused on Ukraine, but focused on Indo-PACOM. That's great, but everybody's asking up here, where's the money going to come from? Yeah, so I thought it was interesting that when they rolled this out, they said it's not going to cost any additional money. And so a program without money is a great idea, and that's it. So what is the idea that they're advocating? It is to be able to put forward forces in such numbers that it will confuse the enemy, confound their ability to target, and if they are able to target and take out a couple of the assets, no big deal. Well, that's what the Space Force has been doing as part of our re-architecture of our space order of battle, 
right? We are going to proliferate low Earth orbit constellations for a reason, and it's exactly the reasons that, that they identified with this replicator program. So I was confused as what's the difference between what we're already doing in space versus what they're proposing here. Yep. No, a lot to sort out on that one. You know, and I want to stick with the notion of production boost. Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment, Bill LaPlante, he's been really hammering on the need to boost the ability to scale build rates. And this is great in my mind. I mean, and he's looking past munitions. We're all huge fans of this. And, you know, if you guys were offering advice in this zone, what would it be? I've known Secretary LaPlante since he was Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Acquisition Technology and Logistics back in 2014, we're fortunate to have them. Doug, I agree with you. I mean, we do need to increase production. Everything that we do right now, since everything needs to be replaced, we build them at min economic quantity. So it's the lowest amount we can build to keep the line sustained, and that's neither efficient or effective. And as General Dutula said, we have a strategy or requirement resource mismatch, which means we can't do all of this at the same time. So if, you know, again, there's priorities that need to be placed. And the other problem we run into, and General Deptuli, you sort of talked about this a little earlier, while Congress changes their minds and decides, okay, this is what we're going to do. I've also seen, and, and Sledge may uh, jump in on this one, but no program lasts more than two secretaries or two chiefs of staff. So we start a program, it may go through the next chief, and then all of a sudden it's not a program uh, that we want to do, that we want to continue, so we waste money. So I agree, we need to focus on production. Uh, all the lines that General Deptula mentioned earlier, if we can get them up to a level where they are producing at the capacity that they can. Secretary LaPlante also talked about foreign military sales and, and improving that process. That will help increase production for us. I also think that we, again, we've how many times we talked about the FARs on these podcasts. I mean, we need to streamline the capability so that we can produce. And then one of the other things that Secretary LaPlante, and he's correct, said that we need to invest in our production lines, which we haven't. That's both organic and non-organic because we do need to increase. And then we need to work with industry, both large, medium, and small businesses so that it is a concerted effort so that we can get the whatever production, but then we need to stick with that production, finish it, and then move it on to a new line. We just can't sustain all these lines forever. Yeah, so from a space perspective on this one, again, it goes back to some of the comments I made about proliferated LEO earlier, but we can use small satellites and less expensive satellites than we've done in the past. And it's not just in low Earth orbit, it's in GEO and, and other orbits and even cis-lunar. So I think there's a lot there to, to be had. The Space Force, from an acquisition perspective, is really looking at how can we produce things more rapidly with less cost and have a higher turnover so that we have greater tech refresh. So this is all part of the current Space Force strategy uh, for acquisition, so I think it lines up very well. The, the whole idea, the notion of assembly lines for satellites would have been a, a pipe dream 10, 15 years ago, but now we're actually seeing that with Starlink and some others that are actually just cranking this out. So how we maintain those and how we can apply that to other areas besides just communications in low Earth orbit is yet to be seen, but I think there's a lot of potential there. Well, folks, it all comes down to money. I can't agree with Bill LaPlante enough, and I've known him since 1990. However, capacity requires investment. We need to be laying additive capacity to all our production lines right now, and it takes years for this to take effect. Consider back in World War II, the Roosevelt administration in Congress began to expand the production base 
in the latter 1930s. And even then, it took until 44 to expand production to meet wartime demand. So long lead time is everything. We also need to pay attention to our supplier base. The small companies that build the components that comprise the final product need investment. This is often the real limiting factor involved with boosting production for things like F-35 and B-21, not just final assembly. Their workforces are often small and often experiencing a gray wave with an aging employee base, and it takes a long time to experience new talent because these folks are often artisans. High interest rates are also a factor for them now, making it really costly to expand. We also need to pay attention to our human capital. The nation is experiencing a severe pilot shortage, not just in the military, but in the civilian sector too. Same with maintainers. We need to ensure that we have those skills in adequate capacity. That means boosting training infrastructure and paying attention to ratios between new entrants and folks who can help mentor the younger personnel. So back to my World War II example. The Army Air Corps was growing its pilot base through the reserves in the 1930s. That was vital. And it's all about doing a lead turn today if we're going to get ourselves in a proper position uh, to handle a major regional conflict sometime in the future, because that's coming. We can't ignore it. Hey, General Liptoe, if I just follow up, I mean, so Secretary LaPlante said that lawmakers need to understand that new large weapon production bill is coming. And I think they understand it's coming, but I don't see a willingness to increase defense top line to meet that demand. So again, we're going to be resource constrained. So where does LaPlante go to get the money? And, and that's the issue. Well, Asia, that's why we're paying you the big bucks, because we need to get you to get our 535 members of Congress to go back and read the preamble of the Constitution, which states that we form this government to, quote, provide for the common defense, comma, promote the general welfare, unquote. And the way they've been spending is if those words were reversed. So, Amen, sir. So good luck, man. That's why we love you. I'd, I'd like to pile on just yeah. uh, a couple of things here. The first is... To your point, interesting take on the supplier base, especially the small companies. And I would argue to a certain degree that's already done, but I think we need to change the model a little bit. I think the department needs to invest directly in those small companies rather than doing it through the primes. I think there's a way that dilutes the spending power of the U.S. government. Will that require the U.S. government to pick winners and losers? Yes, but I think it's worth it in this case. And then the second thing, and then this kind of really brings us all back full circle here is we're talking about all these great things, but until Congress gets their act together and actually funds the government and not continues to authorize and appropriate a series of continuing resolutions, it's not doing us any good. Industry needs predictability to plan, execute, and deliver, plain and simple. And American industry does that better than anyone else on the planet. Investors for these small startups and the small businesses They need some type of a reasonable expectation that there will be a return on investment for them to make the commitment to provide the innovative technologies that we need to prevail in future conflict. And unfortunately, Congress is providing neither. Those are all really good points. We're getting tight on time here, but General Deptula, any thoughts on Ukraine before we sign off? A lot's been going on recently. Yeah, just in brief, I want to emphasize that the delay in providing the Ukrainians weapons that matter 
and the ahistorical, ridiculous employment restrictions on the use of the weapons we provide are giving the Russians the gift of time. And all of this is taking too long. And what that does is seed maneuver and preparation space and advantage to Putin. The current administration is being deterred by Putin, and frankly, it needs to turn up the heat on Russia, not turn it down. Now, in Sludge and Laser, you know, building off of that, the politics of Ukraine, we're obviously hearing more division on the topic. Thoughts? There, yeah, I, I think you're hearing or reading more division than there actually is. We saw what happened uh, the, in the continuing resolution. Senate version had Ukraine funding in it. The House ultimately didn't. It's not in there. But then the House went and passed a Ukraine security assistance bill, and they passed it 311 to 117. Overall, from what I'm hearing from members, Republican, Democrat, House and Senate, overall support for Ukraine. What you did see, and specifically in the House bill, is an establishment of an office of Special Inspector General. It's an oversight to make sure that money is being spent going where it is. Although Ukraine just came out and said, hey, we've got a complete database. We can show you all the serial numbers and where everything's going. I would expect, and it may not be in the base bills as the appropriation bills come through, but there will be funding for Ukraine ultimately going to pass the House and the Senate and get up to the president for signature. But they're just having disagreements right now with certain members on how to get it in there. But when the bills ultimately come to the floor, I would expect it to pass. I don't know what the amounts are going to be. The president asked for 24. The CR had uh, on the Senate side had $6 billion. So we'll just have to see what they work out. I think this is quite simply a debate over uh, priorities, economic priorities balanced against our national security priorities. And I've said it a couple times on previous podcasts before, but I think the president needs to make a case to the American people, not just to members of Congress, that is a national security priority, that we have an objective, we have an end state, we know what victory looks like in Ukraine, this is it then people rally behind the economic priority to make that happen. That's well said. Okay, I want to thank everybody for your time today. I mean, we went through a lot, but we're at the end of our time block here. Can't wait for next month. So General Deptula, Sledge, Laser, and Charles, it's been awesome catching up. Yeah, I think this was one of the better discussions, folks. Have a great air and space power kind of day. Always a pleasure. Everybody have a good weekend. All right, thanks all. It's been great. And with that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. And if you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas that you think we should explore further. And as always, you can join the conversation by following Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn. And you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time.